Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, our second look at the shortlisted writers for the Wolfson History Prize with Mark David Bear, Francesca Stavrakopoulou and Nicholas Orm. Mark David Bear is a professor of international history at the London School of Economics and Political Science. He is the author of five books, including Honoured by the Glory of Islam, Conversion and Conquest in Ottoman Europe, which won the Albert Harani Prize. And today we're going to talk about Mark's new book, which is The Ottomans, Khans, Caesars and Caliphs, which is on the shortlist for this year's Wolfson History Prize. Mark, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me on the programme. The book in the main talks about sort of misconceptions that we have in the so-called West about the Ottoman Empire. Tell us, first of all, I guess at its height, at its greatest extent, where did the Ottoman Empire cover? The Ottoman Empire was based from 1453 in Constantinople, today's city we know as Istanbul. And from there, the Ottomans had, over the centuries, conquered territories as far west as the gates of Vienna in today's Austria. They also moved into North Africa, conquering Egypt. They also moved south as far as Yemen and east as far as the western part of Iran. And again, north too, they moved as far as southern Poland and into Ukraine in the 17th century. So we're speaking about a very large empire really at the center of the world. But this is also, I think now also there's a perception when people think about Islam now, they think about, you know, a monolithic thing, whether that adherent is from, you know, Algeria or Pakistan or Indonesia, it's the same thing in the modern West's mind. And also, I think people imagine when you talk about, you know, like the gates of Vienna, which is a, you know, a key touchstone for right wing people, people think of the Ottoman Empire, again, as Islam, but in the past. And indeed, it is only a very, you know, it's a large empire, but a relatively small part of the Islamic world, wasn't it? The Ottoman Empire was not simply a Muslim empire. Of course, the ruler, the Sultan was a Muslim. But in the first three centuries of the dynasty's existence, the sultan surrounded himself by Christians converted to Islam. And indeed, after the fall of Constantinople, for example, actually some of those Byzantine, Greek, Christian, 
royalty actually served the Ottomans without even converting to Islam. So this is the first thing to remember. The Ottomans created a new ruling class made up of converted Christians. The Ottoman Empire also, for its first three and a half, even four centuries, so from the 1290s to, let's say, the 16th, 17th century, was majority Christian. The Ottomans tolerated Christians and Jews in the empire, and Jews fled from the rest of Europe, where they are persecuted, and settled in this empire, where they are allowed to practice Judaism. Whereas in our own country, in England, Judaism was prohibited by law. So this is the first thing to remember, that the Ottomans were not simply a Muslim empire. It's also important to think about the fact that Islam is a religion whose followers are constantly reinterpreting what the religion means and how to live it in their daily life. Over the centuries, the sultan and the dynasty and the ruling elite changed their perceptions of Islam and their practice of Islam. So we can't even speak of a simple, single Ottoman Sunni Islam. Over the centuries, there were different tendencies all along the spectrum of belief. So the Ottomans themselves were not monolithic in their approach to religion. You mentioned the idea of toleration of other religions, and we'll come back to that a little bit later on. But I just wanted you to tell something about the the seeds of this book were sort of sown in a visit you made to the um, the reading room at the Topkapi Palace Library, which sounds like an incredible place. Could you describe it for us? Yes. So Topkapi Palace today, if you go there as a tourist, is chock-a-block with tourists, and it's, it's loud, and it's crowded, and it's full. But one day a week, the palace is closed to tourists, but open to researchers. So in the 90s, when I was doing my research for my first book, I was able to go that day of the week that it was closed. And so I just about had the palace to myself. And I conducted research, not in the archive, but actually in this beautiful 500-year-old library, which is at the innermost part of the palace. And one day, I entered the library, and the library was bathed in light because there was a television crew there. It was actually a Japanese television crew that was filming this map, which is, in fact, the oldest copy of Columbus's map, Columbus's map of the New World. The Ottomans, the original, Columbus's original is lost, but what we have is this Ottoman copy. And the Ottomans even interviewed crew members from the Columbus's voyages to understand, to find out, because they were curious about these new discoveries and what the world looked like beyond our normal knowledge. So I went into this, into this library, and I actually was able to look at this beautiful map, which was made on gazelle skin parchment. And that was, that was a time when I began to think, well, when we talk about the Ottomans in the West, you've talked about Islam, you've talked about the threat to the West, and so on. But what we usually don't talk about is how connected the Ottomans are to so many of the different eras of history in the West. So this particular map made me think about the age of discovery. And we think about the Portuguese and the Spanish and the English and the French discovering the new world. But we don't think about the rivalry they had with the Ottomans, who were a sea power in the Red Sea and in the Indian Ocean. Indeed, this is something that is, a, you know, one of the main arguments of the book is that, you know, when we think of the history of Europe, we think of the Ottoman Empire as something from the outside, 
that is perhaps invading every now and then, but we don't think of it as an integral part of the history of Europe. I mean, the Ottomans from the 14th century are intermarrying with other European dynasties, Christian dynasties, so be they the Byzantine or the Serbian, they're taking princesses. They also are engaged in diplomatic relations from the 14th century. The Ottomans are engaging with their other European dynasties and powers. So the Ottomans are part of Europe. They're making military alliances east and west. In the 16th century, famously, they will ally with France and they will conspire to attack Rome, the French and the Ottomans together, naval, uh, naval expeditions. So these things, we don't think about these things. We don't think about the role the Ottomans played in the Reformation. The Ottomans allied with Protestants in the Netherlands, in Central Europe. They waged wars against the Catholic Habsburgs, which Luther and others saw as one of the reasons for their success. So this is the fact. And then why don't we think about this? The other day, millions of us watched the magnificent parade, the Horse Guards Parade, the Trooping of the Color here in London, as the, the military paraded to Buckingham Palace. And, and as I was watching this, I couldn't help but think about the Ottomans as I saw a horse and its rider who was banging on two kettle drums. Now, the Ottomans introduced the military band to the world. This is what I was thinking about when I was watching the parade. I was probably the only one thinking about that. But the fact is, is that we, because the Ottomans were ruled by a Muslim sultan, because the Ottomans were indeed a threat to most other European dynasties over the centuries, we tend, here in the West, we tend to think of them merely as a rival, merely as a military threat, which they were for centuries. And we don't think about the commonalities, the connections, the fact that when here in England, we had our first regicide, in the same era, the Ottomans also had their first regicide and also turn towards limited monarchy. So the aim of the book is to make these connections explicit. Now, I'm not trying to deny the Ottomans for their uniqueness. I mentioned that their ruling class in the early centuries was made up of converts. I'm not denying that uniqueness, but in this book, I'm certainly pointing out the similarities and the connections. The Ottomans also saw themselves as, as literally the heirs to the Roman Empire, didn't they? Yes, they did. And that's why from Mehmet the Conqueror, the one who conquered Constantinople in 1453 from the Byzantines, the Ottoman ruler began to call himself Caesar. That is to say that they believed that they were the rightful inheritors of the Holy Roman Empire. Now, I said we were going to talk about the religious tolerance elements of the empire as well. And when we talk about tolerance, it's not the same thing as we would now call equality, is it? No, and we would not want the Ottomans to come back to power and to be revived and to, uh, to rule. We today in, in England, we don't believe in these kind of hierarchies. We don't accept that men should have more rights than women. And members of one religion, in the Ottoman case, is, uh, Muslims, should have more rights than Christians and Jews. We also, obviously, uh, a century and a half or more ago, we abolished slavery. So the Ottoman system also was based on slavery. And so, of course, free people had more rights than slaves. So it was a system, a social system, a legal system based on these legal and social hierarchies. But at the same time, the rulers 
tolerated, in other words, allowed, put up with the existence of religions and groups of people whose values it did not share. But also it's true that, as you've written in other books, that conversion, religious conversion, is absolutely central to the expansion of their empire. That's right. Absolutely. I mentioned creating the new ruling class. I also mentioned how over the centuries, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people converted from Christianity and Judaism to Islam. And they did it for different reasons. Of course, there could be spiritual reasons. They could be guided by Sufis or mystics. They also could wish to intermarry. Again, there are these legal hierarchies. So a Jewish man could not marry a Muslim woman. But if the Jewish man converted to Islam in the pre-modern Ottoman Empire, then he could marry the Muslim woman that he loved. So there are many factors in bringing people to change their religion. Just one more thing. What does it mean to you that the book has been shortlisted for the Wolfson? I'm absolutely thrilled. Absolutely thrilled. Because as you can tell from my accent, I'm not originally from this country. I also was not educated in this country. But to be shortlisted, to have my book shortlisted for the most prestigious history writing prize in the United Kingdom is a validation of my research and writing. And it it makes me very proud indeed. So I've been talking to Mark David Bear. We've been talking about his book, The Ottomans, Khans, Caesars and Caliphs, which is out in the UK from Basic Books. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you for having me. Francesca Stavrakopoulou studied theology at Oxford and is currently Professor of Hebrew Bible and Ancient Religion at the University of Exeter. The author of a number of academic works, she also presented the BBC Two documentary series Bibles Buried Secrets, and she regularly appears on BBC One's The Big Questions and Sunday Morning Live, and has appeared on several Radio 4 shows, including Woman's Hour, The Infinite Monkey Cage, Beyond Belief and The Museum of Curiosity. And today we're going to be talking about Francesca's book, God and Anatomy, which is shortlisted for the Wilson Prize. Francesca, welcome to Little Atoms. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So this book has a, well, let's say has a a really great high concept idea behind it. So tell us what the idea behind the book is. So the idea is to basically tell the early story of the God that we find referenced throughout the Bible. It's basically to try and reconstruct his early career, so the period in which these texts were written. And I do so by basically anatomizing the deity. I argue that this was a god who originally was understood to have a body. And the book, it's almost like a striptease in reverse. We start with his feet and we work our way all the way up his body to his face. And I try to tell tell this story by putting this deity in his ancient cultural context. And so we'll have a look at some of the the various body parts in a minute, but just a couple of things before we do that. People will probably be familiar with the name Yahweh, which is what some people call the Christian or Jewish God. But he actually had a father as well, which is not something I was aware of before, a guy called El. So tell us first of all who El was, and then I guess something about who Yahweh was, because again, he's, he's not necessarily who people would imagine he is. Yeah, 
the term ale is a Semitic term. It basically means deity. And ale was essentially the high god of a polytheistic network of deities um, worshipped in various forms across ancient southwest um, Levant. So the areas that we associate with modern day Palestine, Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, western Syria. And ale was essentially the father of the gods, a little bit like Zeus in the Greek pantheon. And ale had a number of divine sons, as they're referred to in a lot of this ancient literature. And it would appear that in his earliest incarnation, the god Yahweh, who seems to have started off as a relatively minor storm deity, the god Yahweh was originally understood to be one of the sons of the high god Ael, but gradually, gradually, he took over the position of high god in local pantheons that we associate with ancient Israel and became very much the high god himself. So, yeah, originally, God had a dad. And also, well, I've written here El and Yahweh had wives, but actually it's more accurate to say El and Yahweh had a wife. Yeah, El, um, in various ancient Levantine mythologies, El, as is very standard, was married, if you like. He had a consort deity, the high goddess, Asirat, in some particular texts. By the time Yahweh had Yahweh worshippers emerged, so in the late ones, early Iron Ages, it looks like it's Yahweh who is now the primary husband, if you like, of this particular deity. And in Hebrew, she's known as Asherah. And we find her name in numerous times throughout the Hebrew Bible or what Christians call the Old Testament. We have Hebrew inscriptions from the 8th century BCE referring to Yahweh and Asherah. So most scholars now would agree that for many Yahweh worshipping communities in the Iron Age, Yahweh and Asherah were very much the divine power couple at the top of the pantheon. So before we talk about God's body, let's talk about when and where he actually loses his body. Mm. It's a very slow process. So, for example, one of the most famous of the Ten Commandments is the command, you know, you shall not make an image. And, And for many scholars in my field, this reflects the idea that it was quite normative for worshippers to use cult statues and figurines of their gods and god was very much understood you know yahweh like many of the other deities was understood to have a human-shaped body Um, and so there were very anthropomorphic figures that were used in various temples and sanctuaries of yahweh gradually gradually the notion that cult statues were problematic came to be came to have more theological significance cult statues are dangerous because they were easily looted or um, damaged or mutilated by invading armies so it looks like with the turn away from the use of cult statues, as that particular commandment suggests. So increasingly, you get an emphasis on the hiddenness of God. And then gradually over time, so from about the middle of the first millennium BCE, roughly, you know, for the next three, four hundred years, you begin to get the idea that Yahweh's body was increasingly so hidden that very few people had seen it. Only really special people from the very distant past had seen it. So people like Moses and Abraham and Jacob. But then finally, It was the impact of certain broadly platonic philosophical ideas from about the second century BCE onwards that started to reshape what was essentially ancient Levantine mythology into more of an early Jewish metaphysical understanding of God. And within these platonic philosophical theories, to be truly divine meant to be immaterial, incorporeal, unchangeable. So the divine had to be completely other to anything else in the cosmos. And so gradually, God lost his body. 
So let's talk about a, a couple of the, the parts of his body that he had before he lost it. And in some ways, these are obviously literal body parts. In some ways, they've become you know, more metaphorical in our, in our culture. Um, but tell us something, first of all, about God's feet. Well, to be, so for anybody, for any of us to have feet, is to, in some ways, is to mark our social place in the world. It's a sense in which, in ancient temples and sanctuaries, deities were very much understood to be present within those buildings. Temples were called the house of the God. And this literally was understood to be the dwelling place of the deity. And in the Hebrew Bible, we find this idea reflected where Yahweh talks about the Jerusalem temple and says, this is the place of my feet. This is where I will place the soles of my feet forever. So it's very much about the bodily presence and permanence and materiality in some ways of the deity who dwells in this particular place. A temple was a meeting place between the heavenly and earthly realm. And so that was where you went to encounter the deity. And so when Yahweh says his feet are very firmly placed in the Jerusalem temple, it means that that's where he's enthroned. <laughs> he's not going anywhere. And inevitably, I want to talk about God's genitals. Well, one example um, would be from the book of Ezekiel, which is in the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament. And when this character, Ezekiel, he's both a priest and a prophet, he sees Yahweh. He says he sees a human-shaped God sitting on a throne. And he tries to describe what he sees. But obviously, you know, divine bodies are human-shaped, but they're, they're also extremely bright and dangerous to look at directly. So he describes Yahweh's body. And he talks about the top half of the body being covered in blinding light and fire and flashes and flames. Equally, the bottom part of the deity's body is similarly concealed. But the one part that Ezekiel does reveal, he refers to God's motnaim, which is a Hebrew word, which basically, it tends to be translated very politely as loins, but it essentially means his genitals. And so we get this very clear idea that, that you know, this is a God with sexual organs, just like any other deity across ancient Southwest Asia. And just one more, tell us something about how God's head is represented. <laughs> There's all sorts of things that we could say about his head, but I suppose one of the most striking things that we tend to have this, you know, think about the Sistine Chapel and that image, Michelangelo's image of God as he creates the world, and he's presented as this old statesman, if you like, of the universe, and he's got kind of grey-white hair, and he's got wrinkles around his eyes and a white beard. That idea of God only emerged relatively late in God's early career. So only in around the third to the second century BCE. Before that, he was understood to be this deeply good-looking, attractive, charismatic alpha male. He was a god with dark black hair and a beautifully groomed beard, lined eyes. The deities, deities tended to wear eyeliner for various complex cultural reasons, pierced ears. But he was devastatingly good-looking. But gradually over time, he came to take on the facial features of the god Ale, who had always been understood to have had white hair and a long white or grey beard. It wasn't a sign of degeneration, it was a sign of wisdom. And gradually, as Yahweh took on the roles and functions of the high god Ale, so too he gradually took on the colouring of Ale, and so Yahweh's hair turned grey. Obviously, one of the, the earliest mentions of human beings talks about in the Bible talks about as obviously being created in God's image, which suggests that, you know, God mm. looked like a man and not like an in, insubstantial cloud. What do you think we've lost in now it being more common to represent God as, a, you know, an almighty intangible being rather than somebody actually 
physically present? I think one of the most important ways in which this embodied deity functioned in the ancient world was to enable human beings, worshippers, to have a social relationship with their deity. It's very hard to have a social relationship with an abstract. And so in some ways, I think by God being gradually disembodied, perhaps people have lost something of that very intimate, familiar sociality um, that they would experience in the ancient world by encountering things like cult statues of their deities. But we haven't lost everything. So, you know, I think within Judaism and Christianity, it's still very common to think about God and to talk about God in terms of body parts. So people still talk about a God who sees and who hears or who speaks, for example. So we haven't quite got rid of God's body parts altogether. And just to finish off, what does it mean to you that the book has been shortlisted for the Wolfson? <laughs> I was absolutely staggered. I nearly fell off my chair when I found out. I'm completely thrilled that the book's been shortlisted. Really flattered and honoured given the other authors who have been shortlisted, who have all written incredible works. But yeah, I'm really chuffed. And particularly because, you know, this is a book about a deity who, you know, people have been writing about this deity for, you know, two, two and a half thousand years. So it's quite nice to think that my little contribution in some ways to thousands of years of work has been rewarded by being shortlisted. So yeah, I'm really chuffed. So I've been talking to Francesca Stavrakopoulou about her book, God and Anatomy which is out in the UK from Picador. Francesca, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you so much for having me. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
Nicholas Orm is Emeritus Professor of History at Exeter University. He has written over 30 books on the religious and social history of England, including medieval children, medieval schools, medieval pilgrimage, and the history of England's cathedrals. And today we're going to be talking about Nicholas's latest book, which is Going to Church in Medieval England, which is shortlisted for the Wollstone History Prize. Nicholas, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you. First of all, just tell us quickly about how the church began to be organised in England before the period that we're going to talk about in this book. Well, Christianity came to England first under the Romans, but then when uh, the Roman Empire collapsed, which it did soon after the year 400, uh, Christianity didn't disappear, but it was not really organised, at least in what is now England. It survived better in Wales and uh, the southwest and so on. Um, and then in 597, there's a papal mission to Canterbury, led by Augustine of Canterbury. And so a church organisation starts to be set up again. But to begin with, of course, it's a missionary situation there aren't the resources or the support to have very many churches. And for the first 300 years or so, you need to have little groups of clergy running churches because each church really needs to be completely self-sufficient in all, all respects. And so you don't have very many churches. We now call them minsters. They're staffed by monks or similar sorts of clergy, sometimes married, sometimes with children. And that's the case up to about 900. And then by that time, for various reasons, it appears that great estates got subdivided. You've got the emergence of more of a gentry class. You've also got the emergence of villages, uh, which had not been so common beforehand. And there comes to be a desire to have local churches, and that's where our present parochial system with the 10,000 or so uh, surviving medieval churches comes from. Going right back to the early medieval period, who was the clergy in these new churches? Who would be working there? Who would have made up the clergy in those days? They tend to come from the middle ranks of society, I suppose, uh, you do get members of the aristocracy going into the church, but because they have got a lot of power and money behind them, they gravitate to the higher echelons of the church. So they become bishops or deans of cathedrals, canons of cathedrals, and that sort of thing. The people who hold the parishes are usually of gentry or citizen, possibly peasant origin in the case of the poorer parishes, because parishes were not um, identically funded. Each church had its own funding, and the um, incomes of the clergy varied enormously from what you might say nowadays would be 10,000 a year to uh, 150 or 200,000 a year. We tend to presume that the general population, most of whom would have been living in some sort of serfdom on somebody else's land, were required to go to church so not only on occasions of you know births marriages and deaths but each sunday and for various festivals throughout the year but you're talking in the book also about that there were people who didn't go to church so rather than who did go to church let's talk about who didn't go 
Yes, well, you can have laws, can't you? You can say everybody should drive at 30 miles an hour, but it doesn't mean to say that they do. When you've got a law, you have to implement it. How do you make people go to church? Uh, I think in the Middle Ages, it was probably done by social pressure. Uh, people who went to church were not happy about people who persistently didn't go to church. I mean, it would have been easy to miss on Sundays. You could always say you were ill or it was very wet because some people did live three or four miles away from the church. But if you were persistently absent and were clearly doing something else, like running a business, then you would get into trouble. But even so, just as in the present day, it's actually very difficult to get an offender into court. It, it, it needs a lot of effort. It was exactly the same then. So actually making uh, people go to church was quite difficult. There's plenty of examples of it being done, but uh, it wasn't by any means uh, straightforward. So we get on to the people who didn't go to church. Well, some people had a reasonable excuse for not going. Children were not required to be in church until they reached about um, 14 and were reckoned to be uh, adults. They, they were not required in church. Then you get uh, shepherds. They're up on the hills with their sheep. They, they just can't leave them and get down. Uh, you get servants in uh, great houses. Their employers go to church. When they come back at 12 o'clock, they want their dinner. So somebody's got to be there making it. Uh, servants would have got to church, if at all, in the afternoon where they, when there was a service of Evensong. People who comment on this say that there are various other categories. People who are travelling, obviously, merchants or um, shopkeepers who are uh, going to market on a Monday, say, and are getting themselves ready. That would be a reasonable excuse. But then you get the much larger numbers of people who didn't want to go. And as I don't believe that medieval people were any different in nature from modern people, I guess that would be quite a lot of them. Uh, there were advantages in going to church that there aren't today, in that um, religion formed a greater part of people's uh, lives and understanding. And also, it was something going on in a rural community particularly, where there might be almost nothing else going on. But there were plenty of people who would much rather have stayed at home, cleared up after the week, done some jobs, or just had a day off. If you were working six days a week, that day off on Sunday was pretty precious. And uh, as the Sunday morning service was at about eight, would probably last until about half past nine, that took up quite a lot of the day because they got up earlier than, than we do. Obviously, the whole course of church going in England is changed by the Reformation in, in lots of different ways. But I'd like to talk about ways in which maybe for your average rural parish church somewhere in England, how church life didn't change after the Reformation. How did things stay the same? Yes, we tend to look back at the Reformation as a great divide, and uh, historians of a Catholic persuasion have particularly pushed this line because they regret the end of Catholic 
like uh, Christianity in England and uh, don't see much in common between pre-Reformation Catholicism, post-Reformation Protestantism. But it could be said that really the, the great divide is the year 1689. In 1689, religious toleration was introduced into England by Act of Parliament, not for everybody, I may say, not for Catholics, but for Protestant dissenters, which in those days were Baptists, Congregationalists, Quakers and Presbyterians. After 1689, you don't have to go to church, but during and after the Reformation, after 1689, you are still supposed to go to church. And so there continues to be um, a policing system and a, a judicial system for enforcing that. And um, it's also, for a long time, it's, it's, it's socially required to go to church, just as it has been in the Middle Ages. Uh, it takes a long time after the Reformation for many people to get used to the idea that church going should be voluntary and that only happens in 1689. It finishes off, what does it mean to you that the book has been shortlisted for the Wollstone Prize? Well it's, it's rather funny isn't it, <laughs> over 30 books. Um, it's a bit like uh, Ernie I suppose, you know, that if your name goes into the draw enough times it eventually comes up. I mean, obviously, I'm extremely honoured uh, to be on the shortlist, but I have written quite a few other books which I think are of equal merit. So I've been talking to Nicholas Orme. We've been talking about his book, Going to Church in Medieval England, which is out in the UK from Yale University Press. Nicholas, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you very much. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.